the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into hour two of our daily three-hour tour. It is a delight to bring back to the show, as we do every Monday at this time, Brandon J. Weikert. He is a columnist for the Asia Times, the Washington Times, American Greatness, all the important journals. He is the author of several books, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy, uh, which uh, you can pre-order now and it'll be out in just about a month or so. And then, of course, his next book is on China, Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life. No one smarter on these issues, no one better to talk to us about the world and the state of it, which I don't think is very good right now. Brandon Weikert, welcome back. How are you, man? I am okay. How are you? I, I like that you're always okay because, yeah, you look at reports, you look at the state of the world. It's it's never <laughs> fabulous. It's it's never no. DEFCON 5 with you, is it? <laughs> no. no, no. People no, get that I'm wrong not. all the time. I think I have it right. DEFCON 5 is where you want to be, right? I think that's that's yeah. where things are DEFCON placid. DEFCON 4, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, DEFCON 1 is, you know, yeah. we're, we're... Global thermonuclear war. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Anyway, you're never quite at five, but if we listen to no. you, we'll never get to one. We have to listen no. to you. I, I'm just going through, I just got about an hour ago, the edits for the third book, Biohacked, and um, this editor is very particular, so uh, very, very helpful, but, um, you know, this is going to be a long night for me, I think. <laughs> well, um, can I tell you what Margaret Thatcher told George H.W. Bush? You know what I'm going to say. Yeah. Don't go wobbly. No, 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 Colors, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no pale. Yeah, no, no, no pastels. No pastels. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm much more of a Reagan guy than I am a George. Yeah, I, I understand that. Yes, most, most of us are. Most of us. We could use a little Reagan right now. We could use a little. My God, right now. I was just reading. You know, this is conflicting. It's weird. You know, Iran is Iran is itself kind of a mystery in 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 sorts. One of the headlines I read said the Iran nuclear talks are progressing. Um, and one yeah. of the reports I said that the United States says they're progressing, but the Iranians say they're faltering. Yet another yeah. report, oddly, this is this is the odd one, but I think I know why. Iran's Arab foes are mending ties with Iran. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think the answer to that is because they know that to be a friend of the United States, States right now is the riskier proposition. Yes. I, maybe start there. Is is that what they're thinking? That's absolutely what they're thinking. Uh, they're also mad that Biden is not being more amenable to them. Um, these leaders all want something from America. This is something that Trump understood when he went to Riyadh in 2018, and he made that speech where he grabbed the glowing orb that looked like the palantir oh, yeah. from Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, 
the bottom line is this is a very transactional group of regimes that we're dealing with. Yes, they are threatened mutually as we are and the Israelis are by Iran, but ultimately these are very mercurial uh, secular autocrats for the most part, and they want something from America. And Biden is too ignorant and one-dimensional in his thinking to not recognize that and to think that he can spend two years completely, you know, decrying every aspect of the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's existence uh, as a human rights violator and someone to be ashamed of as an ally, and then that he can just show up a few weeks ago uh, and with a hat in hand looking for help with producing more oil, and that the Christadi Crown Prince and his Arab allies are just going to be like, sure, oh yeah, yeah, buddy, let's, let's, let's just live and let live. That's not how it works over there. And so not only are you having... What you said, which is that clearly it doesn't pay to be a friend of America, uh, you know, in a national security standpoint, but in an economic standpoint as well, uh, especially when you look at how China is moving in so hot and heavy into the region economically. It's always economics first with the Chinese. Um, in the last year, my colleagues at the Asia Times have been reporting this, and it's pretty scary. The Chinese are selling sophisticated intermediate-range ballistic missiles both to uh, the Saudis and, it turns out, likely Iran in a way, in a, in a bid to pit the two sides against each other so that China can uh, basically reap the benefits of having those two sides constantly butting heads. And it's an effort to push the United States even more out of the region. And that may be cathartic to some. Certainly, I would like to have less of a hand there. But there's got to be a way, a proper way that it is done, us taking a step back without seeing the region to the Iranians and therefore the Chinese and the Russians. And we're not doing it the right way. And it shows and our allies like the Sunni Arabs know that. Brandon, let me ask you a theoretical question before I come back to a few uh, a few more uh, concrete things that are bothering me about these stories. But uh, at the theoretical level, just something you said had gave me this thought. Obviously, any intelligence agency abroad knows the difference, and thus every country abroad knows the difference between, um, you know, a, a, a Donald Trump or a Ronald Reagan as president versus a Barack Obama and a Joe Biden as president. They understand yeah. where they're coming from a little bit differently. This is why, of yeah. course, hostages were released under Reagan but taken under Carter uh, as right. but one example. But, but in a larger theoretical context— um, when you're talking about, I don't know what, what what the phrase is, power strategy, world power, geopolitical strategy, right? Does the United States suffer going in? In that we are, by dint of elections here, just by dint of democracy or Republican government here, are are we at a a little bit of a uh, shall we say a little bit on a different? Uh, are we on a slightly different and lesser ground? When people look up, uh, look around as to what to cozy up to, like Iran has no self-doubt. People know who the leaders of right. Iran are going to be for a while. About America, right. there's a ton of self-doubt. Is that something yeah. that hampers us as a starting point, theoretically? Oh, ab absolutely, yes. Um, we, you know, Sun Tzu often said to, you know, you have to, you have to know yourself in order to defeat your enemy without um, fighting your enemy. You have to know yourself first. So we always know the last part of the Sun Tzu statement, you know, to win 
uh, without fighting and, 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 and his, his references to that. But there's a first part to that saying, which is that you have to know yourself first. Mm-hmm. Um, and sadly, and I'm paraphrasing now, and so that's not the exact quote, but know yourself first is the thrust of the actual full quote that Sun Tzu says. Um, the, the problem is, is that since the progressive revolution in the last century, turn of the 20th century, particularly in the aftermath of the 1960s, there has been a culture war uh, going on in this country uh, in which a segment of the population, and now a very powerful segment of it, the, the government, the media, the, all these groups, uh, have been trying to change the fundamental aspects of the American character. And I think that is one of the primary reasons for why we appear to be so quixotic and so shambolic on the world stage, because we don't really know who we are anymore. Um, and it gets back to that loss of culture, that shared common values that have been eroded for at least three to four generations now. Um, I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is that we geographically are so far removed from the rest of the world. Our culture is so insular uh, from the rest of the world. Um, we have a history, a long history, of not really wanting to have too much military and foreign policy concerns with the rest of the world outside of trade and small missions to, you know, like counterterrorism stuff. Um, that we just we don't think about geopolitics the way that Europeans have had to, the way that Asians have had to, the way that the Russians have had to, the way that the people in the Middle East, the Arabs and the Persians have had to. And that's something to be really celebrated in a way because it shows you how amazing this country is. But when you're now in a point of crisis, and we are in the worst crisis, and we're going into the worst crisis, this is another world war, we are speeding into, uh, when you're in that position and you don't have the, the, the institutional knowledge to look at geopolitical theory from a you know, rational perspective, you don't have that depth of, of experience with it, which we don't, on an institutional and cultural level, you're going to be at a disadvantage no matter how powerful and wealthy your country is. And that is where we are. It's a combination of cultural malaise, brought on by the internal political debate that's been raging for 100 years as, as to who we are. And then it's also the issue of we just don't pay enough attention to geopolitics, and we never have. Brandon, let me uh, take a quick break here. I want to I want to thank you for that, first of all. Let me take a quick commercial break and come back on some of the more specifics with Iran. Then we'll talk some Russia and China. This assassination yeah. attempt in Russia is a big deal, yes. I think, and it says a lot. I love what you— commented on about it on Twitter, which goes to some internal problems as well, internal in our yes. movement. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Brandon Weikert. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, portions of which are brought to you by Cool Touch Air Conditioning, Heating, and Plumbing. I love this company, Chris Funk and the team. It's a great Team for all your air conditioning needs, whether you need a repair, whether you need something new, something installed, something, as I say, fixed or something inspected. Cool Touch Air Conditioning, Heating, and Plumbing is the go to. Plumbing issues right now, they're there for you 24 7. Give them a call at 623 748 4942. That's Cool Touch at 623 748 4942 or visit them online at cooltouch.us. I've been using them for years, so have my friends. 
Never a complaint. It's just different and better with Cool Touch. Brandon Weikert is our guest, author and columnist, publisher of the Weikert Report. Every once in a while, it's worth spelling his last name as it is mine, W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T. Actually, that's a pretty good mnemonic, Brandon. Um, I, I pronounce my name wrong, but I spell it with the E and the I in the same place you do. So Leapson right. and Weikert both both maintain the uh, both maintain the I after E rule. <laughs> Standing strong. <laughs> I after E. Uh, Brandon, I want to get to Russia in a moment. A lot is going on over there. But before, let's close out this Iran thing. Because yeah. as, assuming arguendo that the story that the U.S. is, the United States is promoting that the talks are going well and progressing along and we've overcome certain hurdles, which is what the uh, uh, press press secretary for the State Department said today. Assuming that's true, you know, this is coming in the wake and on the heels and in the very close wake and in the very short heels of several learned about assassination attempts from the Iranian government against Americans. We have, as you'd mentioned, we talked a little bit about this, Masi Alinejad, uh, Mike yep. Pompeo, uh, John Bolton, uh, Salman Rushdie, all within the past month or so. I think I'm even leaving someone out. But they're right. trying to kill us, literally assassinate yep. prominent Americans or critics of the Iran regime in the case of Masi Alinejad. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and we're going full steam ahead. Explain that one to me. Yeah. So I mean, basically this cuts back to what we were talking about before the break, which is a cultural divide yeah. between the two political parties. As you know, in my forthcoming book, the shadow war, I get into the really pernicious decades long, uh, love affair that the democratic party going back to Jimmy Carter, all the way through Obama and now Biden has had with the Islamists of the Middle East of both the Sunni and Shiite variants, but in this specific case of the Iranian Shiite variant, um, the Democrats really believe that the Islamists represent the majoritarian opinion of the region, and by the United States continuing to align with actors in these societies, usually secular autocrats, uh, who are not of the Islamist ilk, that we are basically aligning our country with the minority, a very unpopular minority, which makes it very dangerous for us. Um, The bottom line is, of course, the Islamists are not the majoritarian uh, view. That's how they present themselves, the same way that Hitler presented the Nazis as the majoritarian viewpoint. But, of course, that wasn't the case. Neither was the Lenins with the Bolsheviks. Uh, That's that's so important. People need to understand this. You know, it's so important. Yes. Almost worth repeating. I won't make you do it. I'll just say this. Minorities can can come to power, too. That's all. Yes. Yeah. Well, because they're usually it has to do with organization. Right. Minority groups, especially Islamists or Nazis or or, or Bolsheviks. Yeah. Saddam Hussein was, you know, a Sunni in a Shiite country. Yeah, that's right. That's right. They tend to be very well organized and very violent right. and very brutal. Right. And that is exactly what's true of the Iranian regime as well. So the point is, is that the, the Democrats have convinced themselves that this is the, the easiest path out of the Middle East, that by ceding at least part of the Middle East to the Shiites of Iran, who make up one-third of the region, Israel and the Sunni Arabs are the others, and if you want to throw in the Turks, you can as well, though I think the Arabs would have a problem with that. Um, but the, the fact is that the, the, the Biden administration believes that they can do business with the mad mullahs of Iran, um, and I don't believe they've resolved anything. I think what's happened is 
that whatever disagreements existed, just to push the agreement through, the nuclear agreement, the Biden team is basically conceding any point that that may be of issue, and they're, they're agreeing with the Iranians just to be done with it and to say that they did this deal. And so this is just like Munich, and I realize that that's a, you have to be careful when you make that analysis, that comparison, because it's overused. But to be honest with you, in this case, I really think that this is the closest thing to a Munich agreement, this restoration of the nuclear deal that Obama did in 2015 and now Biden wants to do. Um, and uh, I just I think it's a nightmare. Does Joe Biden operate from the principle or does Joe Biden, let's just say the administration or the leadership of the administration when it comes to foreign and defense policy, Brandon, do they operate from the point of view that um, ideology is not that important, but really anything that looks like peace or that can be seen as an accord is a good thing, regardless of what the paper entails? Generally, yes, but it's very interesting when the Democrats are in play, when they're in power, rather, um, they do care about one ideology, and that's right-wing extremism. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about domestically. I'm talking about, you know, it's the same issue for why the Democrats have been so vicious to Poland, why they've been so vicious to Hungary, even, why they've been so negative toward the Sunni Arabs and Israel, particularly when Netanyahu is running it. Um, this is this is the Democrats don't like center right regimes. That's uh, a great point. Let, let me let me focus on that with you yeah. for a second. That is a great point, because that was the distinction between the Reagan and Carter foreign policy, wasn't yeah. it? They had no problems uh, with Marxist revolutionaries like they the Sandinistas. Them. Right. They encourage them. Right. Yes. But they but the Batistas and the Somozas, yes. you know, that was unabidable. Right. Well, but, but this goes back, this isn't just, I mean, this was FDR as well. Yeah. FDR loved the Soviets. Yeah. Loved the Soviets. Loved Uncle Joe. Even before, even before the war began, loved Uncle Joe. It was Hitler and the Japanese and the Italian fascists, which we should all hate those regimes too. But they, the, the, the FDR had a real obsessive hatred with those regimes yeah, a, before he hated the Soviets. It's a valued, it's a valid point. Think about it this way. There was no effort to get rid of fascists within the State Department because there weren't any. Right. Right. But, but there, there were, were communists. Yes. Okay. Yes. And even, and even the famous Duquesne spiring, the Nazi spiring, um, which I've been doing a lot of research on lately for a project I'm working on, um, the, the Duquesne spiring was the most effective Nazi spiring in New York and in, in the East Coast. And the FBI had all the, it's the most successful FBI counterintelligence investigation to this day Good. is the taking down of the Duquesne spiring. Does anything similar at the same size and effectiveness no. occur with the Soviet penetration that was going on long before the Nazis penetrated us and long after they, they, they were, the Nazis lost the war? Nothing similar. Yes, we had the Red Scare. But it was constantly being fought by one party in particular, fought against. What uh, was the Democrats and some Republicans in the elite were trying to stop the, the red uh, investigation. But both parties were very much okay with going after the Nazis. Well, we should be okay going after. Yeah, the Nazis. absolutely, Brandon. Should, this is so key. This is so. This Soviets. is so key. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. I got to take the break. I love this history. This is wonderful for me in the audience. Bear with me. Let me let me take the break so you're not interrupted. We'll pick up on this when we come. Right back. 
Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Brandon Weikert is our guest, author of several books, uh, including Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, The Shadow War, Ron's Quest for Supremacy. Brandon, you were just finishing up an, a really interesting history lesson on, on a portion of history I don't think a lot of people know about, which is a lot of people know about the Nazi saboteurs, but there was also this Dickensy spy ring, which is a fascinating tale. Uh, anyway, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and so basically, uh, you know, the Duquesne spy, Duquesne or Duquesne, I, I think. You're probably Duquesne, I right. You're probably yeah, right. Yeah, um, like the university. Yeah. Um, but basically, he was a Nazi colonel. He was a very bad guy, um, and his people were very bad, doing bad things. And, and the FBI and our intelligence services really came down on them very brilliantly. It was, it was an incredible story. I highly recommend people re- research it because it's really interesting. But that same level of, you know, decisiveness, boldness of the investigators, and unequivocal support from both political parties never existed with the anti-communist crackdowns. We did do crackdowns, but there was always this sort of haphazard, you know, half-hearted attempt to do it because there was always a sizable group of elites who, if not outright, sympathized with the uh, Soviets, in some cases, like our scientists working on the Manhattan Project, many of them, they were actual Soviet agents of influence right. that were sent, you know, and so, and they were well-connected, and right. they had a lot of sympathizers in D.C. who were like, well, yeah, they may be, may be doing stuff, but come on, these are our guys, and Uncle Joe's, he's, he's our ally in the war, we can't do anything again. And so there was never this same kind of zealousness across the the society, uh, especially across elite society, to go after communists as there was to go after the Nazis. And I'm not saying the Nazis are any better or, or you know, worse than the communists. I look at them as Josh Moravchik, my old professor, looks at them. They're kind of all the same. Yeah. They're all yeah. part of this evil, you know, diaspora of different socialist ideologies, and I'll throw the Islamists in there, yep. too. Yep. Um, and so I, I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm saying they're all bad, and they all have to be destroyed without without fear. But the Democrats have had a decidedly distinction, uh, have Absolutely. decidedly had a distinction about Absolutely. these, at least since World War II. They Absolutely. really have, and we're seeing it today. And we see it play out, right. and, and also we now see it also in the way that they're intervening in the Islamic world, where they're siding with jihadi groups. Right. And, I mean, the, the war in Libya, we, the war in Libya and what's going on in Syria, we were literally forming the Air Force for al-Qaeda. Our Air Force became al-Qaeda's Air Force, became al-Nusra's Air Force in Syria. We did that. Now, I, it wasn't whether it was active or not on our part that we knew we were doing it, but that's what we were doing. The Obama administration brought several people into the Department of Homeland Security's leadership into the, uh, what is it, the equivalent of the National Security Council for Homeland Security. I think it's the National Homeland Security Council or something. Um, but that brought them into the White House. And these people, all of them were consultants who had deep ties to the Muslim Brotherhood. Right. And, I mean, this, this, is, this is cartoonish level stuff, but it really happened. And it's because the Democrats have a soft spot for these totalitarian ideologies that are variations of, of radical socialism and Islamism, so your audience understands that we're all clear, it's not just a religious movement. There are socialist aspects, or I should say Bolshevik-like 
aspects to the way that these parties are organized and the and what they want to do at the policy level. You know, Hezbollah, for instance, has a universal health care system, as did the Taliban. Uh, I mean, oh, their imagery, all of it. Yeah, you know, who, I, I talk about it an awful lot. It shouldn't be news to the audience. Paul right, Berman's I, I book on this is excellent. Yeah, Paul Berman. Yeah. Uh, the other one, who you know, who did some great yeoman's work on this? It's forgotten. Uh, was Bernard Lewis. Bernard Lewis in the, oh, Bernard in the early Lewis, 80s right. was putting the connections between and what the Soviet Union and my, political Islam had in common. Yeah, yeah sometimes I'll have to do my Bernard yeah. Lewis. I'll, I'll send you an article uh, on it. I have one I've been playing you. with. I'll send it to you. Yeah. Good. yeah. <laughs> uh, listen, Brandon, We uh, speaking of, I, I want to talk about Russia. Uh, it's much in the news, and especially uh, this odd, odd assassination attempt against Someone not a lot of people are familiar with. You are. I knew of him a little bit. Alexander Dugan. um, And his daughter was blown up in what was an attempt against her father. A quick break. Uh, It was a short segment. We have a long one coming up. Will you walk us through what that's all about when we come right back? Thank you. And as I go to break, let me put in a word for balance of nature. I take it every single day for my energy, my health, and my immunity. You can't do better with an all-natural product like balance of nature where you get the equivalent of 10 servings of fruits and vegetables with a blend in one daily dose. One daily dose gives you a blend of 16 whole fruits and 15 whole vegetables. Not a day goes by I don't take it. And I haven't been sick, surprise, surprise, since taking it. Going on several years now. Balanceofnature.com. Best product I've ever taken. You can take it too. Balanceofnature.com. Their fruits and veggies. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon Weikert is our guest. Uh, mentioned a lot of his uh, outlets uh, from uh, where he is a columnist of the Washington Times and Asia Times, American Greatness, his books, Winning Space, The Shadow War, Biohacked, but also his Twitter feed. I want you folks to, uh, if, you fo- if you're on Twitter, follow him at We the Brandon. We the Brandon. It's a very active Twitter feed. All right, Brandon, talk to us about what this story is about Alexander Dugan's daughter. I think her yeah. name is Daria. She's, yeah. she's killed in a Moscow bomb. Yeah. So uh, Alexander Dugan uh, is the father of an ideology that many may not have heard of. It's very popular in Russia called Neo-Eurasianism. It is a bizarre conglomeration of different strands of ideology. It is fascistic. It has elements of uh, Bolshevism in terms of its organization and some of its its ideas. Uh, it is uh, uh, Russian or Slavic, oh, it's Russian chauvinism. Uh, it is not nationalism. The media keeps saying that Dugin is a leading nat- Russian nationalist. No, it is not. It is imperial. It is imperialistic. It is expansionistic. A nationalist movement should, in theory, respect the concept of national sovereignty, which includes the freedom and independence and sovereignty of its neighbors like Ukraine. The neo-Eurasianist theory does not. At its core, neo-Eurasianism says that Russia is not just another country. It is an exceptional nation of unique people, a unique culture that is neither Western nor Eastern, but a fusion of the two. It exists beside and apart and atop of Western and Asian cultures. It is, uh, therefore, entitled to dominate all of Europe and Asia, Eurasia, hence Neo-Eurasianism. 
uh, and it is also um, autocratic. It wants a return to the monarchy, the return of the czar. Uh, it is also fiercely religious to the point that most neo-Eurasianists believe that we are in the final battle uh, for world civilization, that for the final battle to take place, it sounds eerily similar to what they say in Iran, by the way, uh, the, for the final battle to take place, Russia must become an empire again, and it must basically wage war in the name of the Eastern Orthodox faith uh, to uh, basically fight in the end times. Uh, and this is Dugan's theory. And Dugan has been highly influential with many Russian elites, including at various times Vladimir Putin himself, although they have a very hot and cold, complicated relationship. But the ideas are very influential always, even when Dugan himself is not very influential. Um, he and his daughter, she is also a firebrand, or was, uh, in more ways than one now when you think about it, um, but she was a very... <laughs> I caught um, that. I caught that. Okay. <laughs> She was a very, very, very um, uh, a nasty woman. She was a very nasty woman in her own right. And he and his daughter went to a cultural festival 60 miles outside of Moscow. And on the way back, he decided, as they were bringing the cars up to, for them to go home, he decided to let his daughter, who's 29, drive his car. And he took a second vehicle at the last minute. And then as they're driving home shortly thereafter on the highway going back to Moscow, her car blows up. Uh, he's right behind her. So it's a very, you know, kind of heartbreaking image to see the father sure. looking upon. You know, that, that, that's a very human of thing. Course, but he's, he's a very, very vicious guy. And he promotes a very vicious ideology. And you, could, you can reliably make the argument, believably, that one of the primary reasons that Russia is behaving as they are is explicitly because of his teachings over the last right, 30 years. Right, right. This is had, Putin's philosophy, yes, king. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, yes and no, it's more complicated than that, but yes, for the purpose of this conversation, Dugan is highly influential with Putin, the ideas, okay. uh, with Putin and the Siloviki who rule Russia. Now, the issue is, um, who blew up the car? Right. Um, they're blaming Ukraine automatically. You're Ukraine, saying National course, Republican is, Army, though, looks like, right? So there's a group that just announced their existence in the last 24 hours, taking credit. They are a group of anti-Putin Russian expatriates, as well as anti-Putin Russians living in secret in Russia. And they, they, are, they are represented in the public by the only member of the Russian Duma, their parliament, who voted against the 2014 illegal Russian annexation of Crimea. So they are a very virulently anti-Putin group. And as I was saying on Twitter, I'm writing an article about this right now. If it is, in fact, this group, it is possible that the division within Russia's society is far greater mm -hmm. than is being let on, mm -hmm. that the unpopularity of Putin's war of choice in Ukraine is far greater than is being let on to the media and that we could, I mean, this is a very caustic event against a very uh, highly placed individual. Now, he's not a member of the government. He's just an academic, so he didn't have the kind of security right. that the government people would have or some of these oligarchs do. But the fact that he was targeted this way and his daughter, in lieu of him, was killed out right outside the Capitol indicates 
And the fact that, by the way, the FSB, Russian Security Service, is now in full crackdown mode uh, indicates that I think there could be such a civil unrest that's being papered over by the Russian machine uh, to the world that there could actually be such a deep division and schism that there could be a civil war. And by the way, on another quick note, on August 20th, as our friend David Golden has reported at, uh, at, at the Asia Times, uh, August 20th on his Telegram channel, Dugan was calling for regime change against Vladimir Putin. Mm. Not because Vladimir Putin was so wrong and and hardcore, but because Dugan and his followers believe Vladimir Putin is too too peaceful, too moderate. They wanted a harder line person. They wanted so could this have to, been a regime level uh, attempt just it, as well? So as that it. is another theory. That is actually the kind of the prevailing theory in the media is that this might have been Putin or somebody close to Putin sending a message to the Russian right, which is on, which is ascendant uh, right now because uh, Dugan's ideas are so powerful that they're trying to the Putin regime is trying to say to the right in Russia, "Don't you dare come at yeah. Putin because he's going to kill you if you do. Mind your business." Stay in your lane. That's what the prevailing wisdom is. But I'm here to offer, you know, maybe a slightly different version that if it is, in fact, this national Russian or national Republican army, that there very well may be factionalization going on on a level that we don't know about. And then we need to start entertaining somewhat scary possibility that there could be a civil war, possibly a multi-sided civil war in Russia because of this idiotic Russian invasion of Ukraine that's going so terribly for them. And if that's the case, I mean, you're talking loose nukes, you're talking warlordism, you're talking really frightening things. And the fact of the matter is, when I say this, Washington, D.C. laughs, Mark Galati and the so-called experts of the Russian realm in America think I'm a crank, and they're more willing to believe that it was probably just Putin killing a rival. But what if it wasn't? And what if this is the beginning of something much worse, much darker, and much more harder to contain, rather, much harder to contain? And, and look at your track record versus theirs is all you need to know. I, I'd like you to give a concluding thought when we come back. As we go to break, you know, it reminds me of that scene in Godfather 2 where Michael Corleone is seeing, you know, these Cuban communists explode a bomb on themselves against the Cuban army, the uh, Batista military, and he tells Hyman Roth, and Roth says, well, what does that tell you? He says, well, the people in uniform are being paid to fight. The people willing to blow themselves up are volunteers. They could win. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Yes, 960thepatriot.com is where you want to go if you want to see Larry Elder and the premiere of his new movie. We're airing this Wednesday. There's 10 tickets left, so hurry, hurry. I want to thank you, Brandon, for spending your hour with us. Do you want to give a concluding thought on what a Russian civil war might look like and might result in? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a nightmare scenario. Again, it's a possibility. I'm not saying it's going to happen on this. This is one of my kind of more outlandish ones, but... Um, I don't think it's totally outlandish because there's so much we don't know about what's going on within Russia on a daily basis uh, that, that and there, it, the, the, the Russian-Ukraine war is so divisive, so caustic, so costly for Russia. Uh, and yes, they've been able to survive with the sanctions and they're kind of doing okay, but it's very precarious. So if a civil war to break out, it won't just be two sides, I don't think. I think it could be like a Lebanon. It could be like a multi-sided event where you have different power centers competing for control of the center, 
and that you're going to have loose nukes, loose WMD, biochemical, and, and, you know, really the nightmare scenarios we were thinking about in the 90s. Um, I'm remembering the opening of that James Bond film, uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, where he's got the nuke and he's stealing from the Russian uh, bazaar. Yep. Uh, yep. Yeah. And so, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Yep. So, uh, you know, th- these were these were nightmare scenarios in the 90s that we were able with legislation like the Nunn-Lugar, Nunn-Lugar agreement uh, le- that we were able to do with the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, which went over to Russia, partnered with willing members of the Russian forces and government to basically prevent the proliferation of these WMDs and to kind of keep things calm. Well, that's not going to exist in the in a new round uh, of whatever's happening in Russia. Uh, I would give it another six months to a year, but I would not be surprised if by that time there's some kind of collapse of Russians of, of the Putin regime and there's a multi-sided or almost a multi-sided civil war breaking out. And um, no one's prepared for it. No. And it's going to be awful. And even if the fighting is directed inward, because of the weapons involved and because of all that, you're going to see uh, it affect everybody. You know, like Walter Sochak said in The Big Lebowski, it affects us all, man. Yep. It's going to affect everyone. It will be systemic, and it will be hugely destabilizing for the entire world because Russia is such a large chunk of the world land-wise. It touches so much, and it's a nightmare. Well, the nightmare is another line, if I can crib from the Big Lebowski, which is um, the world's life is in Joe Biden's hands. And, uh, you know, our life is in his hands. And and this is not a comforting thought. It's a comforting thought to know you are in our hands, Brandon, and uh, feeding our brains. So, listen, I can't thank you enough, buddy. You're the best. Brandon Weikert, author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy, coming out in just about a month. You can pre-order it right now online. Brandon J. Weikert, bless you, sir, and Godspeed, and thank you. Thank you. You You have a good one. You betcha. Until next uh, week, uh, be safe. I'm Seth Liebson. Uh, Monologue coming up. Don't go away. We'll be right back. This is our concern, dude. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.